Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 10.7, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others. Eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of Eight Billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Lars Leifblad, the original founder of Pollenwind West, a media arts nonprofit working towards a society that is free, just, and loving, co-founder of executive search firm Ballinger Leafblad, and guiding hand, someone who brings people together to make a difference in the world. Let's hear about Lars's journey from wanting to be a doctor to chance encounters that opened his eyes to executive search to his struggles with anxiety and alcoholism. Welcome to One of Eight Billion. Would you please introduce yourself? My name is Lars Leafblad. I'm joining you today from Shoreview, Minnesota, which is a, a suburb um, of the Twin Cities, northern suburb. And yeah, excited to be with you. It's exciting to have you on as well. What do you love to do? What keeps you busy during the day? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Many things. I think reflective of the moment that the, we're in terms of at least the pandemic and what it's recalibrated for all of us the last 18 months. My day is a mix of co-parenting four kids from third grade through 11th grade who were in full distance learning from last March through April of this year and then back in classrooms and they are with me every other week. So 50% of my life, I'm 100% caregiver. And then the additional energy when you're not uh, in that moment is as co-founder of Ballinger Leafblad, which is a, a Twin Cities-based executive search firm that works primarily with, we use the term civic sector, which is a broad category for nonprofits, philanthropy, healthcare, member association, and social enterprise clients uh, doing executive searches. So I have found my energy, especially the last 18 months, in terms of where it's parceled out between working with clients that we work with at Ballinger Leafblad being a co-parent, teacher's assistant, and just taking it a day at a time, I think, <laughs> really trying to take it at a time these days. Yeah, it's certainly a full plate of things that you have. And it feels like everybody has these full plates and are just trying to do the best that they can with what they have right now. Very much so. I think that the visual I have in my head of the spinning the plates, right? The visual of someone being asked to spin multiple plates at once and I, at least as I've talked with friends, colleagues, family, yeah, 
I think we're all just being okay with plates dropping. <laughs> it's just it's impossible to keep three to eight plates spinning in this moment because not only are you trying to spin the plates, but the floor underneath your feet is also spinning this way and that, and it will stop and reverse direction. And so the footing that I think we'd all been used to having somewhat stable as we tried to multitask has certainly been doing a tilt-a-whirl of its own and trying to, to keep us all adjusting to the reality that we're in. I totally see those spinning plates falling around me many times, and it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. They break, and you get another plate, and you <laughs> keep going, right. and you learn, and you know how to spin it a different way, oh. and, and that's how we grow. One of the things you said to me in an email that really made me think was about the impermanence of being one in eight billion, one of eight billion on this planet. <laughs> you said, we are temporary guests on Earth, and I thought that was just such a great perspective on one of eight billion Um, we've just changed our name the podcast has a different name and i wanted to ask you about how does it make you feel to be one of eight billion yeah i love the name i i think i think it grounds us right in the reality that like we were just talking about the impermanence of the reality we'd grown accustomed to in modern life being flipped upside down thanks to a pandemic and a reminder of the interconnectedness that in a global pandemic makes you fully present aware of in the way that we are one of 8 billion and that viruses and ideas and content they don't recognize human-made boundaries or barriers in the way that we had perhaps anticipated, constructed, or hoped they would work. And I think in thinking about your invitation to join you and thinking about the context of being one of 8 billion, it struck me that we've been reminded of, and it certainly reminded me, both the humbling nature of a pandemic, that despite the modern advances of, of medical technology and public health and communication advances and vaccines that we could develop quickly it illuminates the temporary nature of human life that we are we're here for some period of time and that we are guests i think it struck me in thinking about your invitation today that we are here for a chapter right in, in a much longer huge story and whether that's for six days or 106 years or somewhere in between we're here temporarily and what do we make how do we make the most or how do we choose to to spend that time and again i think this last 18 months for many of us has challenged perhaps the assumptions we had about the life that we were leading the life that we could lead and prompting a lot of us to ask questions about when confronted with that mortality or when confronted with those choices we weren't expecting to be making about work-life trade-offs or healthcare trade-offs, or it's just illuminated that no matter, our choices aren't made in a vacuum, they're made in a context of one of eight billion. Right. And and in this era of kind of self-determination and individualism, at least in America uh, or Western life, that it certainly has prompted me to become more aware and thinking through the ramifications of what it means to be part of a much broader interconnected global community. It's amazing that the pandemic has done this to us as humanity. It's truly shown that it doesn't matter where you live. It it doesn't matter what you believe or what your history is. We're all connected through this condition of humanity. And the virus doesn't care. Right? Why should we, right? (laughs) I remember seeing images just growing up or in 
educate my educational pathway and you would see learning about history and seeing and thinking of these images of of pandemics past whether it was influenza or smallpox or polio and these black and white pictures of humans in masks and these open air kind of healthcare facilities trying to tend their fellow humanity and thinking about the years of uncertainty mm-hmm. and lack of knowledge or technology advances and they just had to get they got through it together and yeah. here we are right with the juxtaposition of instantaneous satisfaction and retail delivery tomorrow from across the four corners of the globe and why can't we just move through this this latest little healthcare bump in a week and i think that's yeah we're in it we're in a whole different type of recalibration and readjustment that nature brought into us it's brought into the world and here we are yeah As a temporary guest on Earth, both you and I had a start somewhere. I'd love to go back to hear about where your life started. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Mm. What what did that look like? With a name like Lars Leafblad, you might not (laughs) expect it, but I was actually born in Texas. I was born in... Yes, (laughs) I was born in Houston, Texas. My father at the time was completing medical school at Baylor University, and my mom was completing her undergraduate at the University of Houston. And I came along and was born in Houston, Texas. And then we moved um, to the Twin Cities. My parents had met in college here in the Twin Cities. We moved back to to Minneapolis-St. Paul when I was about, I think I was about two and a half. Part of what brought them back to this part of the country was my dad was doing his residency at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, in this current political moment, <laughs> what's going on in the world? I don't put the Texas birth certificate out in front, but that's where my story starts. And I, Lars Leaf, born in Houston, Texas, and then settled. My folks brought us back, my sister and I, to the Twin Cities in South Minneapolis around 1980. And your sister was also born in Texas, so she also has that Texas birth <laughs> <I> certificate. Think, <laughs> I think, okay, I think, and I, sorry, Megan, if you're listening to this, I think it was that she was born, I think we moved back and Megan was born here in the Twin Cities. So I think the way that our ages worked, they moved, had my sister here not long after we had settled back in the Twin Cities. So I do think I'm the only one of my siblings that has the the Texas birth certificate. <laughs> My origin story. (laughs) If they aren't teasing you about it enough, then maybe they should. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) So you have an upbringing then that looks like a standard South Minneapolis upbringing. Is that where you went to school? It's a unique upbringing. I think every one of ours. Who are you? Where did you start? And what's your story? What's your story? And yeah, Yeah. we moved. We settled. My, My folks bought a home on the east side of Lake Hiawatha not far from Roosevelt High School. And we lived there. I know that neighborhood. Bike rides to Mellow Glaze Donuts was the highlight mm-hmm. of living in that neighborhood. And mm-hmm. we lived there till I was about just under six. And my sister was maybe at four. And my parents divorced at that time. And my mom moved to an apartment in Highland Park. And my dad ended up moving to a a home near Lake Nokomis uh, in South Minneapolis. And that's a big part of my story arc was that moment my sister and I went back and forth between my mom's house and my dad's house every other week. So we would be with mom for a week and then with dad. So I really grew up from about age six to 18 during those years going back and forth every other week. My mom lived 
mostly in the Highland Park area in St. Paul. My dad and who remarried eventually and my dad and stepmother lived in South Minneapolis. First at Lake Nokomis and then Lake Harriet. Water seemed to be part of kind of where my family sought to raise my sister and I. So relative to school and that path, they found an intermediary spot that my sister and I ended up both attending Minnehaha Academy, mm-hmm. located on River Road there next to the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And it was a convenient kind of halfway spot for my mom living in Highland Park, my dad and stepmother's family living in South Minneapolis, and my sister and I went to middle school and high school there at Minnehaha Academy long before its basketball dynasty, I'll say that, of what they've experienced in recent years. That was not part my of God. my Minnehaha experience. But yeah, that's where I grew up. And again, I, I consider myself grateful to have had really equal time and informative years in St. Paul and Minneapolis proper. Different experiences, different community, and meet in the middle for my school day. And so you grew up in a blended family. How did How do you feel that influenced what you wanted to do growing up? You must have had an idea of what you wanted to be when you were a child. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Was it shaped by your blended family? Yes, absolutely. I think as I look back at that experience, I noted it was formulative to have my family do a reorg. My family went through a reorg at age (laughs) six. My mom moves to Highland Park. My dad moves to South Minneapolis. My dad remarried two years later, and he and my stepmother had two boys together. I'm the oldest of four siblings. I have a sister who's a couple of years behind me, and then two younger brothers that are eight and 10 years younger. And that experience of growing up, and I think of my stepmother as a bonus mom. I, mm. I was gifted to have three adults that cared for my sister and I with a lot of love and a lot of attention and a lot of support for our development. And and growing up in two households, you, you adapt to that. And I do think it mm-hmm. informed, as I look at it as an adult, what, you know, what did it help equip me and what, how did it shape me? In a couple of ways. One, just the logistics of living in two homes and two bedrooms and you know, two, where's my homework at? And this was in the 1980s and early 90s. No mobile. It was a lot of backpacking and a lot of mm-hmm. making sure your things are between two houses. And it was two very different kind of, I noted that they were both loving households and they both saw the world very differently. Different types of faith communities that I was invited to join as part of my dad's house and different at my mom's. My mom was Episcopalian at the time and my dad and stepmother were evangelical Baptists. And that certainly growing up between ages six and 18 with those types of different constructs of how the world is and how we can best show up in it and informed who I am. It it was taking lots of ideas and being exposed to a lot of different people and certainly shape how I have found my way through the world from that point. And with regards to who, I think you asked, if I'm correcting Yvonne, you asked about, what did I hear, what did I want to be when I grow up? Did you want to be an executive? Yeah, no, that's a great question. (laughs) I did not aspire to be an executive search person. I thought I wanted to go into medicine. And that was, Mm. my dad was an obstetrician. My stepmother was a nurse midwife. My mother was an attorney. And my dad and stepmom, I just, I was drawn to medicine. So I ended up 
going to St. Olaf College down in Northfield and was drawn there partially because of just the strength of its pre-medical program. And I thought I, my dad and stepmother appear to find meaning and purpose and joy in their medical careers. And I loved connecting with people. I loved biology and I got to St. Olaf and I learned that was not the ticket to getting through pre-medical curriculum of calculus and physics (laughs) and chemistry. And I thought, I don't think this is the path. Yeah. I think honestly, Yvonne, when I think about where were the, you look back in your choose your own adventure story, where were the indicators that I might ever find my way into the people connecting business? And I honestly go back and look, I, I was in a move a few years ago. I was looking through old journals from third grade. We kept a daily journal in third grade. And I remember looking in the back of this journal and on the inside cover of that journal, I had segmented my classmates into six different tiers of how close a friend they were to me. And it was so, I was like, what third grader, is that a recruiter mentality to think about how I segment people into groups of individualization and proximity to me or the world? And no one told me that. No one taught me that. I just think I look back and I do think I was innately curious about the individualization of people in my life, their story, who are they, what did they, what was their relationship to me, or how did I interact with them? And but yeah, the earliest thoughts about what did I want to be when I grow up was an eye towards medicine, and mm. the liberal arts experience that Saint Olaf exposed to me early on helped me realize that was not a path that I was going to choose to follow. And a lot of other things subsequently took place after that decision. And what did you end up graduating with? And what did, because it wasn't medicine, Not what medicine. did that end up switching to? Yeah, I ended up, I had a wonderful first year economics course and had a, just a great second semester of my first year. I had a, a wonderful economics class and I ended up being an economics major. I was really intrigued by the choices uh, that people make, right? Trade-offs really around that, whether it's behaviors in consumer behavior or economic policy. I was intrigued around understanding trade-offs people are willing to make, think they're willing to make, and then in practice make. And this first kind of economics 101 course I had just was a great, I loved it. I loved learning about it. I didn't necessarily see myself as an economist, but St. Olaf did not offer a a general business degree. It was economics and the management studies subtract that I pursued. I think, Yvonne, though, again, this notion of looking back at how the dots connected, I think the underpinnings of finding my way 25 years later into this career of executive search, I look at the extracurriculars I was involved with at St. Olaf outside of the classroom, and that's really where... I see the foundational pillars of how I built a vocation in the human connecting business taking root. Do you think you could have noticed it earlier on? Like, when did you figure out that you were like, this was what you wanted to do? Isn't that fascinating? I know. It's like, don't you wish you could get that clarity at 18 or 23? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was... I had that clarity. So briefly, when I was at St. Olaf, I started a couple of different student organizations that were connected to networking, really out of my own self-interest of, I thought, I love coming to this community. I would love to meet people that have gone here before me. And St. Olaf 
for those of your listeners who don't know, is located in Northfield, which is an hour south so, of Minneapolis. South, hour south of Minneapolis. So it's not in <laughs> it's not in the Twin Cities in terms of proximity to running into alumni in the Skyway or at a coffee shop around the corner. You got to track down to the cornfields around Northfield. And I, at the time, started a, a student organization that connected. It's called SOAP, the St. Olaf Alumni Partnership, and we students, we self-organized. This was in 1996, 97. So again, pre-web, we would literally bus groups of St. Olaf students up to the Twin Cities to meet with alumni in different fields of interest, medicine, law, healthcare, business, entrepreneurship, public affairs. And it was just this, no one told us to do it. No one told me, hey, Lars, you should really go start this alumni group. It will serve you. It, again, where you asked, that maybe was the first indicator that I just skipped past. Like, mm. boy, I just spent hundreds of hours over my sophomore, junior, and senior years building an organization to connect students to alumni. Maybe there could be a career in that, <laughs> that light bulb did not fire until a decade yeah. later when I was working at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I was the chief development officer at the time, raising resources for the Humphrey School. And a panelist on a panel that we hosted, Rebecca Yanish at the time, now Rebecca Driscoll, she had been a commissioner of trade and economic development, Governor Ventura administration, and she was talking about her own career path. And someone asked, what are you doing now that you've left Governor Ventura's administration? And she said, I'm an executive recruiter. And um, I was curious, what is this, an executive recruiter? So I went up to her after the panel and I just said, Rebecca, hi, I'm Lars, introduced myself. And I asked her, what is an executive recruiter? And this is, again, she said, I get paid to be a connector for my clients. And I thought that was the light bulb moment, honestly, Yvonne, like that was the light bulb moment when I thought this was 2007 or so. How do I find my way into this field where you get hired by client organizations to go out and connect on their behalf with really talented people and introduce them to opportunities? And I had just not thought that was a career path that might exist. I didn't come up a traditional HR path. I didn't come out of recruiting. It was just that light bulb moment for me was hearing from someone who'd served in public leadership and who herself was just an incredible connector, kind of had the light bulb fire for me by just saying the, the essence, the distillation of what a great executive search consultant is, is a connector on behalf of a client organization or hiring executive to go out and connect with people. And so that really was the first seed light bulb in 2007 that led into this current work here 15 years later. And what was the first step you took to be on your own, to start a company, maybe be with a partner? Because I know you have a partner in the firm you're in. Yeah. So the short story of a longer story is that I was invited by Rebecca, eventually Rebecca Yanish. Following that, we had a networking coffee. She told me more about what it was like to be in the executive search business and mentioned, you know, I should really connect you with my three partners. So I met with her partners at the time at a firm called Keystone Search and uh, the, there were four partners. They all had the chance to meet with me in the, the summer and fall of 2007 and tell me about why they were in this work. And I ended up joining that team in 2007 and loved it. Was there for almost six years working primarily with my current co-founder, Marsha Ballinger and Rebecca. 
Yanish in our nonprofit practice. So working with civic clients, healthcare nonprofit foundations, member associations. I literally officed between the two of them in an open office kind of layout for six years. And I just got to learn mm. through osmosis and practice as a second chair on a lot of these projects for six years from just two exceptional coaches and mentors. The notion of starting my own thing, I have a couple of answers to that. I loved being part of a team. So I loved being part of this five-person partnership at Keystone, was not looking to go out on my own or start a new thing. The shorthand of it is that I had an opportunity to meet with Jennifer Ford Reedy, who had been named the new president of the Bush Foundation in the summer of 2012. Jen and I had known each other for a number of years, and we had a coffee that I thought might be to discuss her vision for a, a leadership team that she would be you know, creating as the new president of the Bush Foundation. And by the end of the coffee, she had really planted a seed with me of saying, hey, there's a new position that we're going to be opening up at the foundation to lead and work with our Bush fellows. And if you're interested, would love to have you apply. And long story short, went back and shared with my partners, hey, this is an opportunity that Jen has encouraged me to look at. What do you all think? And, you know, they were incredibly supportive, just amazing partners to say, despite our own self-interest, we think it's a little hypocritical if we wouldn't say explore an opportunity that might be in front of you. And long, again, I went through the Bush Foundation process, joined the Bush Foundation in a role that led the Bush Fellowships work for a couple of years. And again, thought I would be there till I was no longer able to work. Honestly, Yvonne, I thought this mm. is a dream job. I love working yeah. at the Bush Fellows. This is in philanthropy. You have the chance to invest resources into people with possibility and make amazing impact. And the unexpected learnings that I had in that role and working for someone like Jen as CEO, I was surrounded all day for two years by people who were taking a risk, right? Like, I want to become a Bush Fellow. I want to apply for this $100,000 fellowship because I'm willing to take steps forward in my growth as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a civic catalyst for good. And it kept striking me that there was this restlessness in my own spirit around, I'd always wanted to start something. And I'd fed that spirit of wanting to start something. This is another story and a sidebar, but I had fed that spirit of wanting to create or be part of creating something through starting what's now a nonprofit organization here in the Twin Cities called Pollen. And I had started mm -hmm. Pollen as a, as a, really as a job e-newsletter in 2000. 9 2008 2009 and that eventually became a full-time nonprofit and that fed that part of my spirit that wanted to be part of creating and starting and growing and once I got into this role at the Bush Foundation I remember meeting with Jen for my one year review and again got asked that question when you work for a great boss that what do you want to be when you grow up there was no answer I was supposed to give there was no trick question it was sincerity of what are you continuing to learn about yourself and where you want to go in the world and Jen and I talked and I really again shared I think at some point I would really love to start something and that turned into a much longer conversation over a series of months and ended up leaving the Bush Foundation to start Ballinger Leafblad with Bush Foundation as our first client. And mm. that was in the summer of 2014. And my former partner at Keystone Search, Marsha Ballinger, and I, um, over the course of several months, sat down and amicably figured out a way to leave from her current work at Keystone and me to leave from the Bush Foundation. And we started Ballinger Leafblad together in that summer of 2014. 
really through, again, a mix of vulnerability and life timing being such that we could try it on for size and see how it fit and how it worked. And here we are seven years later, and it's just been amazing. I'm so grateful to work with a co-founder like Marsha and work with a, a large number of clients uh, across the region. And again, forever indebted to Bush Foundation and to Jen Reedy for being that kind of angel client that encouraged us to leave the tree with at least a half a wing flapping <laughs> and mm. flutter on to, to start this practice in 2014. Now I understand why you're so vocal about the fellowships at the Bush Foundation. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've seen you talk yeah. about them. You're so passionate about the Bush Foundation. Yeah. And I never knew that this was as a result of your fellowship, your leadership there, your fellowship there, your work there, and now as part of Ballinger Leafblad as well. You seem to love to be able to put people together to network. And I, I did not know that you founded Holland Midwest is a wonderful organization, a wonderful nonprofit. I knew you were involved somehow. I didn't yep. realize you were the founder. You started basically in an economy that was in the tank. If I remember correctly, <laughs> you basically started it yeah. right around the 2008 downturn. And when we had that market crash. That's correct. Never waste a terrible recession <laughs> to try something on. Yeah, let's try this. Yeah, it was. Why I, yeah, why not? It really, Yvonne, you're right. It started in 2008. There was a vision that had been from day one crystallized that this is what we're going to create. It was really, a, at first, a logistics issue that I had to try to solve. And the logistics issue was my partners and I at the time in 2008 were being inundated with requests from not just strangers, but from friends and family and former work colleagues and, and clients that were saying, I am in job transition unexpectedly or I anticipate being in job transition, can you help me find a job? And as an executive search firm, we're not on that side of the table, right? We're not architected to be, we're not an outplacement firm. We don't find jobs for people. We find people for jobs. And yet I wanted, as did my partners, like, how can we be helpful to this massive disruption of people that are finding the tectonic plates shifted for all of us? So I started a newsletter. It was an email. It wasn't a newsletter. It was an email. And I called it the Lars Festo because I don't know why I did. I just did because I would take emails, Yvonne, and every couple of weeks I would say, hey, these 32 people have emailed me in the last two weeks and they're all looking for a new role. And I'd include a link to their LinkedIn profile. I would say, here are six organizations that aren't in a position to hire a recruiting firm, but they've got some really cool jobs posted. And here are these jobs that they asked us to spread the word around. And then I would include other opportunities to try to connect people, whether that was networking events or speakers or articles or opportunities to collaborate. And it was this hodgepodge of an effort to both connect people who were seeking and people that were you know, hiring but didn't have resources to, to try to find work with a retained recruiter. And that email newsletter, the Lars Festo, kept getting forwarded to people. And at the end of six months, there was a thousand people on this email list. One of those emails landed in the inbox of, at the time, the publisher and editor and founder of MinPost, Joel Kramer. And mm. Joel said, this is a cool idea. It seems like you're doing this thing to try to help people. And there's interesting content here. And let's have lunch. And so Joel and I had lunch 2009 or so and ended up inviting me to really take 
again, we rebranded Lars Festo <laughs> to pollen. And it was really this idea of saying, can we spread opportunity, right? Can we cross pollinate people, potential uh, possibilities? How do we cross pollinate? And so pollen was the term I came up with. And MinPost was a catalyst. We put really, if you go back and Google MinPost pollen, you'll find early, it almost looks like a column of where I was sharing pollen in a column format back in 2009, 10, 11, as a regular part of MinPost. And by that point, we had several thousand folks. And I remember the team at MinPost saying, an average MinPost story will get read for 38 seconds or whatever the number was. And they're like, and when we link pollen, it gets read for five to six minutes. Like clearly people are reading this thing top to bottom. And Mm -hmm. it was just something that we noodled on as a team. And by that team, the current executive director, Jamie Millard, and her co-founder, Megan Murphy, and this handful of other volunteers that had really said, hey, Lars, we love this pollen thing. You need a website. And I didn't, I'm not a tech guy. (laughs) I wasn't working. I was doing this on nights and weekends because I cared, not because it was a moneymaker and or a for-profit venture. And this group of volunteers really put heart, soul, and sweat equity into creating what is now Pollen as a standalone nonprofit around 2012. And that team has subsequently grown Pollen into this amazing entity, social enterprise. And yeah, the, the Pollen story started during the great downturn as a newsletter to try to be helpful. And I think, again, reflective of this place in the Twin Cities and this community, some hands went up to volunteer to try to be helpful. And the community responded to saying, this is a resource that's truly trying to help others. And it just took on a life of its own and now exists really to help amplify and opportunities and stories of people making impact and opportunities to make impact for a more just, equitable and possibility filled community and region in this moment we live. How did you feel when you realized you needed to leave pollen into someone else's hands? Yeah, that's something as entrepreneurs, when you create and start, and I had no exit plan, right? There wasn't, this is going to be acquired, or this, we're going to build to scale. Right. It was just, we created this thing, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, there's 12,000 people reading this thing every week, and who are you going to entrust to keep reading, or growing, or leading this thing? And I'm so thankful to have worked with, again, Jamie Millard, in particular, that we sat down at a Dunn Brothers, the Freight House Dunn Brothers over a decade ago, that moment of passing the baton, it, it was this, it's just this mutual connection of like trust and respect and, and just having to take a step into the unknown of saying, I believe that this person and what they aspire to continue to create is, I, I'm going to trust them. It's hard to find the trust, to believe in the trust, and then to steer clear, right? Like to not be hovering around as a former founder, and I'll just keep editing. And there were some gentle and needed nudges along the way to keep me out of the work, and that was needed. It helped that at the time we were going through that transition of pollen, really from Lars as volunteer founder and editor to Jamie as full-time ED, I had joined the staff of the Bush Foundation and subsequently before I joined the staff, stepped down, turned the baton over to Jamie. Kudos to her. She like left her full-time job to take on this thing that she wanted to create as a nonprofit and ended up growing this thing. The joy and gratitude and pride you feel as someone that's been a founder or, or 
co-founder and then watching the legacy of someone behind you take it to entirely new heights and entirely new impact ways is just, it's incredible. That's what they've certainly done. Yeah, it's the ripples of good that keep coming from it as I've met people that have found roles through Pollen or had their stories highlighted by Pollen and that led to new funding for their nonprofit or for their own growth. It's just been what an annuity. It's an annuity of good that you help create. And then a decade later, you're continuing to hear from people that you've impacted their lives in ways you had no idea that have happened as a result of what Pollen has, has brought to life. And that's just, it's been an incredible gift. It feels like a child that grew up and is now doing its own thing and just bringing additional Total. good to the world. You've that's multiplied your own good and self-sustaining and it continues to give back. Wonderful way to think of it. And as I'm reminded daily in my efforts to be a good parent, the humbling that comes with it is what you Mm -hmm. learn from your children. And I have continued to be challenged by pollen and grow from pollen and looking to these leaders in their 20s, uh, 30s, the kind of groups behind. I'm 44 and looking at folks that are 34 and 24 and who see the work of pollen and and the changes that they're trying to bring about in a systemic way relative to transparency and social justice and racial equity and Mm -hmm. sustainable kind of a sustainable economy in a transformative way. And it's just, it's pushed me like a, like a child does in ways that like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I'm going to think differently about that or challenge my assumptions or challenge my actions. And it's just been a gift. I want to ask you a difficult question. I don't know if it's difficult, but it's certainly a little bit of a change in mood. What has been your greatest struggle in life? I think the greatest struggle has been, I have dealt with, you know, generalized anxiety my whole life. Mm -hmm. I can't remember a time when I didn't have a pit in my stomach from anxiety. And that was formulative in my early years as a young kid, always being worrywart, if you will, or the kid who always was nervous or the kid who was always anxious. That was me. The first time I didn't feel that worry and anxiety was when I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 18 at an open house party after high school had ended before heading to college. And I had that drink and I had that pit in my stomach go away. And it was this light bulb went off that for the first time in my life, that anxiety that I'm feeling is gone. And -hmm. subsequently, I'm an alcoholic. And I, from age 18 to 33, again, a whole nother podcast topic, but my journey Mm -hmm. from um, using alcohol, abusing alcohol, finding my way to be a high performing alcoholic for a number of years, that first you know, decade out of college and really coming to terms, my, I call it my rebirth day, but my date of sobriety of January 1st, 2011 was really a, a moment of saying, unless I get help, I'm at risk of, you know, losing my family, my kids, myself, and called Hazleton and ended up starting outpatient treatment for alcoholism that's early in that 2011. And I mentioned them both because 
I am in active recovery. I've been in recovery since January 1st, 2011. Um, grateful to be sober, grateful to be living in mini sober. This is a place that around the world people come to Hazelden. They come for the addiction treatment and recovery that this place provides to, to people from all over the world that come here. And I get to live here and be part of those recovery circles, recovery community. But that anxiety that underpinned my use of alcohol to help mitigate and minimize that anxiety never went away. That's still there. And so when I think about what's been my greatest struggle, yeah, I've gained new tools without alcohol in my life to deal with anxiety, whether that's anti-anxiety medications or health and wellness strategies around movement and diet and activity, being surrounded with love, being of service to others. And yet the anxiety is always still there. When I think about the struggle, for me, that anxiety, that struggle with anxiety still remains. It's still a part of who I am. I read, and perhaps as you've talked with other guests around, this notion of imposter syndrome or self-doubt mm-hmm. or lack mm-hmm. of self-confidence. There are many times, you know, that I've felt those things. I've, you know, felt like there's a mask I have to put on to be performative. And the challenge is, how do I continue to find ways to be my full self and true self and work through those feelings and, and, and emotions and mental health issues around anxiety that still remain. And that's an ongoing struggle. I'm grateful for the question because I think that's you know part of what unites us all as one of eight billion are the struggles we share. And talking openly yes. about those struggles doesn't have a struggle in isolation. You realize that as I've talked, you know, what a privilege of being in the human interview business where I get to spend my days talking with these leaders for these executive positions and leadership roles. And you get to hear their narratives and their personal stories of career and life and struggles that they faced. And in some of those conversations you do, you learn about how leaders have navigated their own issues of self-doubt or self-confidence or anxiety, uh, depression. And I think we're in a moment as a community, as a country, as a world, we're talking about these things that we didn't used to talk about. What a gift, again. And so I want to note that, again, for anyone, I've, I'm in recovery, you deal with ongoing anxiety, and I have found that by being open about that, sharing with others, again, it allows me to find inspiration and solidarity and connection with others who reach out and say, hey, I'm going through the same thing, or I've been through the same thing, or I think I would love to talk further. And again, it's just this annuity of good that by sharing one's yeah. struggles, good continues to come your way and trying to equip others from what you've learned uh, or experienced is just part of my ongoing way of dealing with that challenge in my life. Thank you for sharing that with us, Lars. It's so important, and I'm so grateful at you being open and vulnerable and authentic with it. And I agree. I, I think that everybody has a struggle. I think it's it's definitely something that unites us all in this condition of humanity that we experience. And I I wonder how our children and our young our youth, our the next generation, how they're experiencing anxiety, how they're experiencing the things that we are dealing with now as middle-aged men, as middle-aged human. Like, what could we be doing to empower them and to and to help them so that they can get to the space of openly talking and processing and getting mental health treatment mm. sooner? Absolutely. We, we talked earlier in the conversation about this pandemic. When I looked at my kids during 
they were doing school from home, and this was as a second grader, sixth grader, eighth grader, and tenth grader, where you're home for nine months in a camera length from your classmates and teachers, mm-hmm. and the anxiety that that manifests in ways that their personalities are different, but that shows up, right? Are we going to be doing this again next year? And what if, what does that mean? If so, and masking as a society and vaccines. And I th- and then on top of that, the anxieties that are manifested as kids in a way, again, thanks to social media, again, the array of tools that bring the opportunity for comparison or judgment or on the flip side, celebration and uniqueness and joy and acceptance. You just want to figure, we didn't have those tools in front of us in TikTok or Insta or any of these things in our own. And I look back in my own junior high years or high school and, and yeah, I think how do we as parents, as caregivers, as advocates in our schools, in our healthcare systems, think about mental health as a cornerstone, just like we would have a wellness visit around if they got their vaccines for MMR or their 12-year-old boosters for smallpox or polio. And this Mm -hmm. isn't around Mm -hmm. COVID. It's just around that we've normalized wellness checks for how tall, your weight, your height, your shots. And I agree with you, not wait until you're 33 and in a Hazelden outpatient center to say, I think I have some issues here. I think we've made great strides and I want to continue to play whatever part I can in this community, in this country to say, normalizing to talk with kids around feelings of being anxious or sad or scared. Let's talk about those feelings and then let's figure out a way to help you move through them. And sometimes that's through therapy and sometimes that's through medication and sometimes it's through both. And other times it's behavioral based accommodations that we can make and communication things we can try. But I, I think I'm certainly no expert, but what I've read, these troubling stats around the mental health challenges facing our high schoolers and college age kids who feel these expectations of performance and perfection. And how do we help them navigate that? Because we want to be equipping, it's smart, it's the right thing to do. And from that generational legacy of thinking about we're temporary guests on this earth, how do we, how do we equip the yeah. guests behind us in line to say, I don't want you to have to wait till you're 28 to have the chance to visit with a therapist and get recommended yeah, for Prozac yeah. or Zitalopram. But if it's an, an, where you are both encouraged to ask for what you need or supported as you ask for help, or that as parents, we can ask one another for guidance on how we can best be supporting our kids in elementary, junior, high school, college age, or whatever post-high school life brings to talk about that and support those folks. And I do think we're making strides. I agree. Much more work to be done, but I, certainly different than when you and I, at least in my life, certainly different than being a 12-year-old kid with a pit in your stomach and don't bite your nails and stop being a worrywart from the system is different than some of the tools and just knowledge and self-awareness that exists out there in in our you know daily lives now to help kids get that type of support early. I agree with you. I think it's very different than when it was when you and I were in high school. And so we've made strides, but there's still work to be done. There's still work to be done. Still work to be done. One final question for you, Lars. What do you hope you'll see in your lifetime in humanity that we haven't seen yet? What is one thing in humanity? Boy, that is a, that's a wonderful question. I, from an applied wish, right? Like how does it manifest? What's something I would just love to see in our lifetime? It would be a breakthrough cure for a medical condition that affects across class, race, 
gender, something making some profound advance, the cure for Alzheimer's or dementia or in mm. cancer. I think about what brought humanity together for our parents or grandparents, you know, through global conflict and wars. And how do we get men at the time, men on the moon and this, what it spurred in terms of an innovation race and there are the cold war factors, but it's like, how cool would it be? And maybe we got a taste of it with COVID that the world came together in record breaking speed to produce these vaccinations, to give the human population the best chance to survive the latest pandemic that hit the population of earth. And how cool would it be? And again, to find as we think about cancer or dementia or Alzheimer's, something that affects people all around the world and is just some amazing breakthrough in kind of that ability through some amazingly unthought of you know combination of yeah. shared research or intellectual property or cooperation versus competition that comes up with some breakthrough. That would be awesome to think about in our lifetime losing loved ones much earlier than an actuary might suggest they would be lost to cancer or early onset dementia, let alone those who are afflicted with those health conditions early in life, I think would be amazing. And I think it's attainable if we were to allocate kind of resources and intentionality in some new ways coming out of something like a global pandemic. So that'd be amazing. I'm hopeful as I talk with my kids their awareness about just the events of the interconnection of the world is just so far beyond where I was at 16 uh, or 12 or 10 or 8 relative to things like climate change. And thinking about the drought we're experiencing in Minnesota is not, oh, it's just a dry year. Understanding, because I've seen videos and they've heard folks in social media and they've talked with other kids and they've heard from teachers, like, it will be their generation and those of us that are trying to, again, be legacy stewards. How do we move this earth, the actions we take on this earth, to put humans in a position to continue to be sustainable and thriving in the climate in which we live and that we affect? And I would love to see in our lifetime, I'm 44, and I'm hopeful that I'm about the halfway point. So I'm hopeful that if I'm at the nine-hole mark of an 18-hole golf course or whatever analogy you want to use, like on the back nine or the back half of my life, to be looking back and saying, amazing, the 30, 40, 50-somethings that are now in elected office or are leading in governance or founding capacities, there's kind of, I don't know if we'll ever get universal, but there's 75% agreement on the direction that we need to take to put Earth in the best position to sustain, whether it's 8 billion or 10 billion or the next 12 billion of us that are going to be on this planet, to be sustainable together. And I think that's going to take courage, lots of courage, and it's going to take leadership, and it's going to take trade-offs. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that in our lifetime, Yvonne, we're going to see folks move through some of what have been barriers to that type of shared reimagination together out of necessity, just based on where we're at in a world that we all occupy together. I'm hopeful of that as well, Lars. I, I'm also of the same age as you are, and I, I feel like the back nine are going to be the best nine we've had. <laughs> All right. I love it. I love it. Let's I, do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. The back nine. Here we come. Here we come on the back nine. Here we nine. go. Thank you so much for your time today, Lars. It's precious. I'm so grateful for it. And thank you for being one of 8 billion with me. Thanks for having me, Yvonne. And I look forward to our next conversation. And yeah, we'll see you on the back nine. We'll see you on the back nine. 
I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion, when we hear from Lindsay Gish. I love helping people who are deeply passionate about and interested in the thing that they're working on and just like freeing them up to do their work and focus on the things that like they want to be focusing on and not on the things that are running social media or running email or website content, technical updates, whatever it is, alleviating them from all of that. And I just love working with people like that. I'm so inspired by them. This has been One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us, online at oneof8b.com. Join us again next time as we listen to one of 8 billion other stories. One of 8 billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.